Hi, everyone. Welcome to another film roundtable. Um, I'm Maria Prieto, and I'm here to introduce our fantastic panelists, as well as our guest moderator today. But before we dive into any of that, um, and many of you usual listener, listeners know that we like to take a moment of silence before these conversations to honor all the COVID deaths that have happened in the last year, um, which as of today, January 16th, 2020 is 2,016,860 worldwide deaths. We also wanna honor all of our black and brown brothers and sisters, as well as our First Nations brothers and sisters whose lives have been taken by the hands of police brutality and other senseless acts of violence. Thank you, thanks guys. Um, all right, so I'm gonna introduce our guest today. We have Michael Goy, cinematographer and ASC member joining us. Hi Michael, how are you? Hello, good, nice to be here. Good, good. We have cinematographer Christian Springer. Hi Christian. Hello. Good to see you. Uh, cinematographer Tahila DeCastro, hi Tahila. Hi, how are you? Good, good. And we have Steve Bellamy, the president of Motion Picture and Entertainment at Kodak. Hi, Steve. How are you doing? Good, good. And finally, I want to introduce filmmaker Hannah Welliver, who was absolutely crucial in organizing this discussion and will be our guest moderator today. Hi, Hannah. Hey, Maria. Um, yeah, no, well, seriously, thank you. Welcome, all of you. You are now part of the Film Roundtable family. And uh, I'm going to pass this off to Hannah but uh, I just wanna let the audience know that today this group is here to talk about film, specifically the importance of learning how to shoot on film within the film school environment. So Hannah, off to you. Awesome, thanks Maria. And honestly, uh, thank you all for being here today. I think this is a really important topic um, and we have some really unique perspectives all here together. So excited to see where our conversation goes. As Maria mentioned, you know, if you wanna ask questions to the other panelists, let's keep this as um, open as possible. Um, I do wanna start off by saying that this panel was really a reaction. Um, me organizing this panel was a reaction to finding out that Columbia College um, is disbanding their film program, uh, not the full program, but teaching film cameras and the film teachings along with those cameras. Um, they are, almost completely phased out and will be fully phased out by the end of the academic year. Um, again, I confirmed with faculty members yesterday that this is sort of the state of film at Columbia College. Um, things will go to potentially a workshop, uh, but they're getting rid of these tools that a lot of us um, have learned at the school. Um, and I think this is a really interesting topic. You know, where is film going? When what's the, the relationship in uh, college film schools and education with learning these skills? Um, and Steve, I really want to start with you. Um, I'm curious what um, what's been going on at Kodak the last five to ten years? Like, how have things changed? And there's definitely been this resurgence. Um, I'm curious if you could just touch on that for us. Give us a little backstory. Sure. Well, I would first say that if if Columbia is stopping using film, then they are no longer a film school, they're a file school. And um, so uh, they shouldn't pretend to be a film school if they're not using film. Um, in terms of Kodak, uh, we've had a 
a meteoric kind of renaissance period of growth, every single file format or film format, 8, 16, 35, 65 have all exploded in growth. And, um, you know, there've been periods of time where our biggest problem is we can't make film fast enough. Uh, we've seen by far and away uh, our biggest growth in eight millimeter and 16 millimeter. And the, the next generation of artists, motion picture artists, that's where we are seeing the biggest growth. And that shows, you know, occasionally we'll get a school that will do something stupid like this. And it really shows how uh, just out of touch they are with the market. Because what happened was that the kids that started shooting at 240 and 360 resolutions, when, when video got to 4K, they're like, okay, this really, I know how to do this and it's really gotten good. The kids that started at 4K couldn't care less about moving to 6K and 8K. That's absolutely meaningless. Those are the kids that are migrating back into film or not back in film, migrating into film. And they are just finding it as an artistic tool that is unparalleled. And I mean, we are just dominated, dominating now on great young artists using the medium, especially commercials. We're getting commercials from the weirdest places ever to where a brand will say, we want this shot on 16 millimeter. You know, before a brand could care less, it was usually the director that was making that choice, but it's just, it's completely changed. And uh, we've got all kinds of announcements coming out here in the next four to six months that are going to speak to that. Awesome. Yeah, I can't wait to hear about those. Um, and this is great. I mean, Christian, could you talk to us about what your education at Columbia College was like and uh, what you were learning when you were in school? <clears throat> yeah, I graduated in um, 2007. And um, at the time, this was like pre-5D video, pre-Red Alexa, you know, it was kind of um, pre-really tapeless uh, video in general. And our entire education was on film, uh, aside from one digital cinema class at the very end, I think it was my senior, last semester of my senior year, um, which was basically uh, learning how to read waveform vector scopes, learning how to, you know, learning all the different, you know, what D5 was and um, learning a little bit about um, digital intermediate. And then we looked at, uh, we basically were taught um, the Sony F900 and the Barricam. But uh, leaving film school, I, that was the only film, the only non-film format that I had really even played around with. And then when I graduated, there was, you know, DVX, HVXs that kind of became very popular and then Red came out a year or so later. And, um, but yeah, I, I pretty much didn't do any video whatsoever. I mean, there was, you know, some, I think directing students were doing some projects on like DV cam. Um, but uh, for the most part, I was all super 16 and then uh, 35 in the last uh, like three semesters of school. Awesome. And yeah, that's very different than the experience of a lot of students today. Um, Tahila, I'm curious if you could share your experience at Chapman, because um, we talked a little bit about that and sort of, you know, what, what were you shooting on at Chapman and what was sort of the main, um, what were you mainly learning? Yeah, I, I had an interesting time at Chapman because it was the period when seeing slowly less and less species were being shot on film. 
Um, I graduated in 2018. And so I grew up with, you know, Sony cameras and pretty much all digital. And we had little to no experience um, working with film because a lot of the gear that was at the school was outdated and or um, not necessarily outdated, but there was always problems with it. And there was no incentive for the school to fix it um, because they wanted to, you know, stay current because a lot of the films at the time for convenience were being shot digitally. So they thought, oh, we, you know, if all these films are being shot on Alexa, you guys should be conditioned to shoot on what's convenient and practical because, um, you know, when you're in school, you're trying to just be resourceful and use what you have. And um, even though we had gear at the school, like film, uh, we had SR2s and an old scanner, they're all broken to a certain extent. And um, a lot of the funds that the school decided to use that for was to bring in new Sony cameras or um, try and get Reds or Alexas. Totally. And uh, Michael, I'm curious now that you've heard these two sort of more like um, recent, I guess, experiences of students. Um, I'm curious what your experience was like at Columbia. Well, um, I would say even even before Columbia, it's 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 funny because when when I hear these discussions right now, seventy years ago when I Love Lucy was in production and, and uh, the entire industry was, was uh, laughing at Desi Arnaz because he was insisting on shooting I Love Lucy on film instead of videotape, which was the new hot thing. And everybody was converting to videotape. And, you know, why do you want to shoot on film? And I Love Lucy is, is one of the only maybe one or two shows that survives today, <laughs> you know, because it was shot on film. But Anyway, um, you know, when, when I went to Columbia College, uh, and I was there from 1976 to 1980, um, what I liked about the experiences is very hands-on. Um, you know, they, they put a Bolex and 100 feet of film in your hands on the very first day, and they sent you out to shoot a dozen shots that tell a story that means something to you, knowing full well that you would completely screw it up. But in the process, it, it eliminated your fear of failure. It eliminated the fear of, of making a mistake or getting an exposure wrong or, or whatever it was. And that lack of fear kind of carried me through the rest of, of my career. I was never afraid to, to take a chance uh, doing something that I had never done before because the, the curiosity of what I would achieve, you know, just overrode any fear that I had about doing something that had never been done before. So that, that was really kind of instrumental in, in my career and the development of who I became as a cinematographer and a director, quite honestly. So it's, it's, um, and you know, the, the film digital question, I mean, unquestionably it's important to, to keep a, abreast of, of things that are happening in the industry. I'm one of the, uh, the co-chairs of the, the virtual uh, production and virtual reality committee for the industry and all of those things that that committee is doing. But the fact of the matter is, is, is that um, film is not an invalid medium today. Film is a vital medium today. And it's, it's short-sighted to, to not recognize the value both artistically and I would say financially that choosing one medium over another may may give you 
you know, like in, in the movie that I directed and shot, Mary, the, the costs of shooting film, 35 millimeter film, as opposed to shooting it on digital came out dead even on that movie. You know, so the, the decision to shoot film wasn't, didn't have to be predicated on, on a cost. It, it was predicated on what I felt artistically satisfied, you know, the, the needs of that movie and the logistics of that movie. Yeah, I think you mentioned some interesting things here. Um, I always think about when we talked uh, a few weeks ago and something stuck out to me, how you said just shooting on film is quicker and that's how you worded it. And I'm curious if you could sort of demystify that for any producers who might, you know, eventually be listening um, and what that means to you. Well, for me, it's a very fast process because it brings me back to, you know, light, camera, lens, and a roll of film, and I, I can shoot, and it eliminates a lot of the electronic chain that, that goes on. Um, it, it eliminates the, the preponderant, you know, um, depend, you know, depending on video monitors, which I never cared for. I'd rather, you know, see things by my eye. So, you know, it's a very, very fast way for, for me to work, you know, and, and you know, I, I could not have gotten Mary done, you know, which is a movie starring Gary Oldman taking place on a sailboat and shot in 18 days. I could not have gotten it done if I had not shot it on film, to be really honest. Under those conditions in, in Gulf Shores, Alabama and hurricane season, you know, to be out there on a boat with digital cameras and, and connectivity to monitors and stuff like that, it, it was just not going to get done that way, you know. Yeah, I think that film's a great example. Um, I'm curious, Tahila, um, I would love for you to tell your story about how you learned 16 and how you learned film um, after leaving school. So I, once I graduated, I realized that I had, because I hadn't had experience shooting on film, it limited me from the jobs that were coming up because as Steve mentioned, there's kind of, a demand for it. And um, I didn't want to lose out on any of those jobs. So I reached out to boutique um, rental houses in LA and asked if I could practice loading film and maybe shoot um, some passion projects on my own. Um, but it, it made me realize that I, since I paid for film school, I wish I had done that, um, you know, in school. Um, because I was spending all my own money to try to get um, jobs post-graduation. And I think, you know, something that schools should try and bring back in is what Michael had experience with, where you were given a Bolex camera and to try to shoot projects that way. Nowadays, it's here's a Sony camera, here's monitors, here's... So they're conditioning us to rely on these different sources when... I didn't learn this till after school where when you shoot on a film, you're really trusting your instinct and you're going with your gut some of the times and you're not questioning your decisions when you're staring at, you know, so many different monitors and waveforms and um, yeah. And that, that kind of was my process was kind of developing my eye and my instinct post-grad with just attempting film. I didn't really think about that when I was in school. I was just trying to 
be technical about everything. Whether I think with film, it taught me to be really intentional about my decisions. And especially the first few film projects that I was shooting, they were so low budget. So I think everyone was, the atmosphere was completely different where it's like, okay, we only have X amount of roles. Everybody's on top of their you know, job. And I think that was something that I really enjoyed, you know, that experience of everyone's kind of in it together since there's so many limited takes. See, and, and to Hila, what the experience that you didn't have that, that I had was, was that when I was developing my skills as a cinematographer, nobody could look at a monitor and make a judgment of what I was doing until it was, it was done and, and they had seen it. And, you know, and, uh, you know today with, with the HD monitors on set and stuff like that, while you're in the process of doing what you're, you're doing artistically, people will come up and comment on it and people will say, what about this or what about that? And it's, it's, a, it's a really bad interruption of your artistic process and what it is you're trying to do and develop in your head. Mm -hmm. I, I spent a lot of time on sets and I can walk on a set, be there for about five seconds, not look at the camera and tell you whether it's a film set or a video set just by looking at the people. If on, on a film set, there is a cadence. It, there is just hyper focus, like you can't believe, then there's a break, then there's hyper focus. And when you go on, on a video set, it's just constantly rolling. And eventually all of the crew is looking at their phone, they're chatting, everybody's a director. You know, every right now on these bigger productions, there are deep carts and monitor villages everywhere. And you you see. 10 directors on a movie where there used to be one. And it's uh, it's made for a very bad motion picture process in my opinion, but it's it's insanely definitive. I mean, you can walk on and in one second know whether it's film or video. And then I would also add something that Michael said about cost. The, the biggest myth in Hollywood is that film costs more. And I'm on the front lines of it. And I, I can tell you it costs less almost every single time. You know, line producers will look at a budget and say, oh, look, if we just cut out the film and the processing, and the scanning, we save all this money. Yeah, but they never talk about everything that happens downstream from there. I start right at the camera. There's 800 fully depreciated 35 millimeter cameras sitting at Panavision today. I mean, you can walk in and rent those for so inexpensive. You have to to get your money back out of an Alexa or a red so quickly because those things become paperweights a lot faster. But I mean, you can shoot a 50 year old 35 millimeter camera and it's fine. I actually got some footage the other day that came from one of the Lumiere brothers cameras and it looked stunning from like 1895 or whatever that year is. But, um, but when you're on a film set, sorry, I rescue dogs and they're all going, bonkers right now um wh when you're on on a film set it the the movie is made in pre-production because there are stakes when you're rolling film there's this illusion that the film costs so much money that you can only use a little bit of it the reality is the most expensive component is people's time and so when you have 40 people on a set and you spend three extra hours or three extra days it's a very expensive thing so so with with film you, you, you know what you're gonna do when you get on set. And what I notice on video productions, 
eh, there's more winging it. There's more trying a whole bunch of stuff. Sh the shooting ratio on movie shot with film is so low and it's so high when you get into video. So almost always the amount of days you use to make a movie is gonna be shorter on film than when you shoot on video. Then when you get into post-production, now you've got to find your movie in this needle in a haystack kind of situation where you've shot fourfold more principal photography and you got to go find your movie. You got to pay people to do that. And then you get through all that and you pay a whole bunch of money to make your video look like film, which you could have just done in the first place. So unequivocally, I will state it is cheaper to shoot film almost every single time but you will get kickback from line producers morning, noon, and night to that. Yeah, you know, Keanu Reeves uh, told me that the difference for him on acting on film or, or video was that the, the first uh, video feature that he did, they never shut off the camera. They kept it rolling for 42 minutes. And, and while <laughs> things were adjusted or the director walked in and gave him instructions and, and Keanu said at one point, he said, can, can we just fucking cut the camera? <laughs> so that I can think about what I want to do. And I don't have to worry that everything else is, is being shot. And I think there's a discipline uh, that, you know, I think learning on film, especially when you're beginning to learn, you know, uh, the process of what, you know, we have created as a film, you know, filmmaking on set, there's a discipline that I think even if you do graduate and even if you do go on and shoot digital or you're going to shoot everything in, you know, VR or whatever, I think it still is a, is an incredibly important discipline just, just for everyone, especially directors, directors of photography, producers to understand that, you know, the quality of the product that you're getting out of that discipline versus when you, you know, let the camera roll infinitely. And, you know, I think, I think it's a ripple effect uh, all the way down, like Michael's saying to the actors, um, to the budget. Uh, and I think, I think from director and DP standpoint, I think it really forces you to trust your eye that I think now, you know, as cinematographers, for the most part, we are forced to trust a monitor. And, you know, if you have a monitor that you don't trust, then, then, you know, you're, you're kind of shit out of luck. And I think in a lot of ways, you know, developing that, that trust for, you know, what you can see with your own eyes, uh, developing an understanding of what film stock is capable of capturing, what processing is capable of developing. Um, I think even if you don't, go you know into a, a, a career where you're shooting a ton of film I think it's so important as just the basis of an education um, to start there yeah I, I agree wholly I, I may look like I hate video I don't I actually love video I was I drive a digital car I was friends with Steve Jobs I'm, I'm <laughs> um, but I will say when it comes to making motion picture art I am so sold on film, it is ridiculous. And, and it comes down a lot to cost is one thing, but, but performance. And the performance is influenced by the word stakes. When I see a movie being shot on film, it really feels like every performance is they're stepping up to the plate at Yankee Stadium. And when I see something shot on a camera that's been rolling for 45 minutes, it feels like the minor leagues in Poughkeepsie with 19 people in the audience. And when you have stakes, you, that forces 
preparation that forces focus that fork, you know, just there's this feeling of I've got to be great. And I think it shows in the art. Yeah. yeah and it's I'm, also, okay. sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead, Christian. I was just going to say, you know, I, I do, I do sort of feel like it is, it is the responsibility of the educational system or at least educators that, you know, our film schools that it's important that we preserve that culture um, because, you know, like Steve's saying, when an actor shows up to set or uh, a focus puller shows up to set and realizes that, uh, you know, every take is is literally valuable and that if they don't bring their A game, they're literally wasting money if a focus puller ruins a shot or if an actor, you know, flubs their line or whatever. I think it, it demands excellence from everyone. And I think that it's it's because we have this lineage of filmmaking where, you know, for how many years we've all, you know, shot film, learned on film, acted on film, produced film. Uh, but I think that if we lose that as a culture, you know, it, it's scary to, to think what, you know, how filmmaking may evolve away from that idea. And I think it's the responsibility of educators to help preserve that culture help preserve that, uh, that idea that, you know, every, when you're going to a film set, everyone needs to be on their A game and everyone needs to do their best work. Yeah, the, well, the movie business, uh, go, go ahead, Michael. No, I just want to say, and, and, and to, to that point, I mean, the, part of the culture, what, what's changing right now is, is that cinematographers are intense off the set, yeah. watching the television. You know, the, the creative process is, is happening on the set and it's not just happening on the set when you're lighting it or setting it up. It's happening when the actors are performing it. And, and to, to have the cinematographer now removed from the set and sequestered in, in a black tent off to the side somewhere uh, takes, takes you out of, out of the, the, the creative process that could be happening if you're standing right there on the set where you can react to something momentary that's happening with the camera operator and, and the focus puller and with the actor and stuff. And, you know, that, that's a big change. I think that's happening right now. That's detrimental. That is so true. That's the movie business suffered because there is no commissioner of common sense across the board. So every single educational institution, it just focused on how do we get our $75,000 per kid per year? How do we raise more funds? You know, hopefully one of these past directors can hit big so we can get them to donate a building. I mean, you know, that's what they're focused on. The reality is we've, we've come very close. Like right when I, when I took the job at Kodak, um, I was basically commissioned to exit it. You know, can you, can you get as much life out of this before it goes away in 18 months, two years? And, you know, God th thank the Lord, we've turned it around, but we were on death's door. And why that's important is there is no such thing as long-term digital archival. It's just, it's not a thing. You cannot depend on digital data to be there in 10 years, 20 years, 50 years, 100 years. That is a film thing. And, uh, you know, Michael can attest to what they found in, in Canada, you know, with buried film that was over 100 years old that still plays that was, you know, frozen in tundra and frozen and thawed out 115 times. Um, film is very resilient. 
And, you know, film is like a statue and, and a, a digital capture is just zeros and ones magnetically held to a disc or some kind of a thing that's got to be, you know, powered up for a long period forever for perpetuity, basically. And, you know, go get an old computer and open it up and see if your JPEG still open. I mean, digital data does not stand the test of time at all. It just doesn't. And so we just for that thing alone, we should be fighting like crazy to uh, make sure that film stays alive and healthy forever. And the educational institution should be at the forefront of that. And they are woefully lacking. Well, I'll tell you, you know, the very, very first feature film that I shot was a 16 millimeter movie called Moonstalker. It was a horror film. We shot it in outside of Reno, Nevada. And there was a company that wanted to remaster it and, and put it out again. And all the video copies that they could find were just so horribly, um, you know, downgraded in, in quality and, and were copies of copies and stuff like that. And I was able to track down the original 16 millimeter negative. So that movie right now is being remastered from the original negative and it's going to look better than, than it ever looked on any of the, the video releases. So, you know, I'm really excited about that. That's like a 32 year old movie. Yeah. I have, I have a, a, I have a counterpoint to that, which is that you know, as we as we approach the inauguration, I, I worked for a shot for the presidential archives in 2009 for uh, Barack Obama's first uh, inauguration. And, you know, it was a week and a half of, you know, documentary work following Obama and, and basically leading up to this historical event. And it was all shot red, uh, red one at the time, which was a new format. And the, you know, the topic of archival came up and, you know, we turned all of our hard drives over to the archives. And then the producer that had, that was working for uh, Obama's inauguration, uh, we backed all of our original files up to LTO, I don't know, five or four, something like that. And not six months ago, I was contacted by that production company to help them recover the LTO tapes uh, because they wanted, they needed to go back in and get that footage. And we had the hardest time <laughs> getting into those LTO tapes. We couldn't find functioning LTO decks that would, that would, you know, were compatible with the tapes. We went through the, the manufacturer of the decks to try to find working LTO decks that were so outdated that no one was using before uh, using anymore and uh, it was a sort of a shocking moment that at the time it was sold as this like you know bulletproof way of archiving this super important footage and here we are 12 years later and we barely I mean we did end up finding out uh, finding a way to access it but it was very fearful for you know 20 years from now no one would ever be able to get into those tapes. Film is just your eyes and God's light. <laughs> it's a statue. Steve, I have a question sort of, you know, jumping off of all of these points of, of how and is Kodak like incentivizing people to shoot? Um, I know that there are some sort of deals with like students. There's like a discounted price, but I'm curious if you could talk about what those incentives might be. Sure. Um, the, the good news is that film is is healthy. So many people are using it. Uh, the bad news is film is a very low margin product. There is just not a lot of margin in every foot of film that we sell. Um, 
we are very, one, we're very, very green. Um, and, and we'll get pushback sometime from producers. So say, oh yeah, we, uh, Apple for instance, uh, yeah, we're gonna stick with, with a digital camera just because the environmental concerns and, and it's by far and away more environmentally sound to use film than it is to use the alternative by far. You know, cameras are used for 50 years. We recover all the silver. Our reclamation is amazing because we've have to do it for film. We now do it for all kinds of other companies. And so we are reclaiming tons and tons of silver. So it's, it's an amazingly ecologically friendly product. Uh, whereas in the past it wasn't when formaldehyde was used in processing and things of that ilk. But in terms of, of why I was going down that rant was, uh, you know, we are very uh, exposed to the price of silver. We're very ex exposed to some prices of chemicals. And whenever you have kind of world instability, like you have right now, where everything's sort of off the rails, pandemics, odd presidential situations, you know, parties hating each other, um, that, that wreaks havoc on those types of mark, markets. And some of our prices of ingredients have gone up double, you know, in three months. Um, and so there's, it's just, there's not a lot of margin. So we don't do tons of deep discounting on film. Um, that being said, we do everything we can to help people make their art. And it, it, it's a very, it's not like there's retailers everywhere. It's us, you know, there's myself and about 10 other people Michael knows them all and probably has every cell phone on speed dial. And, you know, we, we do all kinds of things to help people. Like for instance, right now, Alejandro Inarutu has got a couple hundred thousand extra feet of 65 millimeter film. And I'm on the phone all day long, trying to find other people that can use that film and they get it cheaper. And he has his situation work out fine. So um, we do have a, a small student discount. Um, and uh, you know we in, we incent like crazy. Uh, lots of big directors like Chris Nolan and Patty Jenkins will make donations of their you know they shoot millions of feet of film on their big movies and then they will donate that the extra film and all kinds of pieces of art are made just on their remnants. Um, so it, it's very cost effective to shoot film. It really is. Yeah, I'm curious, based on our chat the other day, when I was working uh, at Warren Miller, they had a few SR2s tucked in their uh, cage that I would, I would take inventory. I'm curious if you have any fun insights with Warren's relationship with shooting on film, because that was really what they were doing was lugging, uh, you know, SR2s up on the helicopter to film people skiing off mountains. That's what yeah. they were using. Well, ironically, um, so I was sitting in a bar in... Denver with Warren Miller when he was about maybe 90 and uh, he had lost his company to time at the point at that point in time and he was in a big lawsuit with him and so he was getting my advice on that and uh, he basically said you ought to make these movies and so I did and that year I made a ski film and the next six years I made ski movies and uh, the story and winter were kind of like the two big ones I did. And they were literally based off of Warren, just kind of daring me to do it. Um, you know, if, if you watched his movies and then you watched went, went forward with time, it very much echoes film versus what has happened in our digital world. You know, in the beginning, 
it was him with a hand crank 16 millimeter camera meeting people at a ski resort forming personal relationships editing a movie himself with a small little crew and then literally doing a a road tour where he was the narrator in person so he would narrate the movie while it was playing to these big audiences of thousands of people and then as you went forward through the lifespan of that company it ended up where the movies were basically digital product placements to where you know Warren Miller Entertainment would go to the Tahoe Ski Association get paid a couple of hundred grand and then go do a fake ski segment that's really a veiled commercial and so you would you'd have 10 commercials strung together it was called a movie and it went from this magical amazing thing to this absolute just painful to watch how much longer do I have to sit in this theater experience <laughs> and it reminds me so much of going to the theater pre-covid you know I, I've I've been to I won't name the theater because they're friends of mine but um I went to a theater in Santa Monica two days in the row where the DCP failed and there ended up being an Apple screen on the movie theater screen and a mouse came out, went down to the bar at the bottom and reset the computer two days in a row. In, in all of my years of going to movies, I had one instance where a film projector broke it was in Mammoth, California, watching, ironically, a Warren Miller movie. And there were flames coming out of the projection booth. We were all like, oh, my God, the theater going to burn down. And 10 minutes later, somehow, miraculously, we were watching the movie. And we missed just a little <laughs> bit. In the first 18 months when it switched to, to DCPs, there were seven major malfunctions in movies that I went to. And to this day... I see tons of malfunctions in movie theaters on digital apparatus and it's changing and everybody I know that owns a theater is crying because, you know, they were tricked into with those VPLs, virtual print fee VPFs, you know, they were tricked into buying these, these digital projectors. And then 15 minutes after they're all up and running, all of a sudden here's the new 3k or the new 4k. And then they're being forced to move up. You know, when you had a, an analog projector, you'd have a 50, 60, 7 year old projector, you'd spend $18 a year on oil, you'd spend uh, $1,500 every year and a half on a new bulb set, and that was it, and you never had a breakdown. The digital projectors, you know, these people are having $3,500 sales or technical calls you know, every month trying to fix these things and keep them on the road. So it didn't help the movie experience and it, uh, and it certainly didn't help from a cost perspective. And if you look, if digital projectors and digital apparatus was going to really make movie making less expensive and it was gonna be less expensive all the way down the chain, why in the hell did the price of movie tickets triple when we went from analog to digital? Sorry, I went on a rant there, but. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> lion out of his uh you got you got to come over uh when when we get this COVID under uh control steve because i i just got my 35 millimeter projector and and i just got a an ib technicolor print of oliver so oh. along along with my prints of bambi and and fantasia and, and a bunch of other <laughs> films so <laughs> well i think steve was on an interesting track about sort of like reliability 
in as far as machinery. I'm curious if anyone has any examples of when things maybe weren't working properly on the digital front or film was more reliable or even vice versa, just reliability in general with the equipment. I'm talking too much, but I have a great story after somebody else does theirs. Launch into yours, Steve. Uh, well, I, I can't name a name, but there was a very, last year, I, I got called by someone who was going to shoot film. They didn't. They ended up shooting their movie on one of those other camera brands. Uh, they had one scene in their movie that was a weekend that they had that set for, for two days. And then after that, it was gone. They could not re replace it. It was like tw day 28 of a 34 day shoot. On Monday, for some reason, all three sets of drives had no date on them. They don't know why, they could not recover them. They had to pause the movie. They had to go back and rewrite the entire movie. They lost their cast and the movie didn't have the most important part of the entire movie. And it, you know, they had to duct tape, masking tape and put a movie together. I won't name the name because they're not happy about the situation. I'm not gonna embarrass companies, but that would not have happened if they were shooting film and believe it, I let them know that. Um, it just wouldn't have happened. We, we don't have those types, you know, there's, there's problems with film, film kicks back. Sometimes you'll get, oh, we've got some little dots over here. We've got a hue or something like that. It's usually you fix it in post. And, and there, there's an organic uh, wrestling with film that happens, occurs. It's just part of it. I always, I love movies that have those sort of happy accidents in them. I love those images that aren't perfect. I love light leaks. I love film burns when they're organic and they really happen. I hate it when people fake them in post, but I love when it happens organically. And so you do, you do have that, but you never just get skunked like all our data is gone. You know, that just doesn't happen with film. You never... You know, the camera won't turn on for some reason. You know, usually it's like a screw broke and it's an, it's an analog thing and you go fix that. But so that's my story. Yeah. And I think there was this, you know, there was this like uh, myth that was sold to everyone that like solid state media was going to be the safest, most reliable way of recording and storing. But I feel like even with, you know, like C fast cards are a great example, like, you know, uh, a lot of the Lexa minis use CFAST cards, but I've had so many issues with CFAST cards in the last couple of years, likely because they've been in rotation for so long and, you know, the rental houses are not keeping track of, you know, how many times they've been used or, you know, what temperature they've been, you know, uh, they've heated up to at whatever point, but I've had, uh, I would say in the last two years, I've probably had half a dozen circumstances where, you know, we've lost a card or we've had to send it out for recovery or, or hard drive has failed or, you know, it's, I think in the beginning it was sold as this like way safer thing than videotape, way safer than film stock. And I think it's a total myth. Well, that, that's for sure that that's a myth. And I mean, one angry employee with a magnet in his pocket, just you know, <laughs> a card, but um, you know, if you look, I, I, I'll make a notice here about, as I look at the analog companies, everybody that's working at Panavision or you know, Photocam or these analog companies, 
they're like on their 39th year. You go to Kodak and there's people in Rochester that have literally worked at Kodak for 50 plus years. When I meet people in the digital world, it's like I've worked at nine companies in seven years. There, there just isn't the, I don't know, there's not the connectivity between what you're doing. And so what I notice is that leads to just deception and lying. You're trying to sell as much as you can, as fast as you can. And if you take projection, for instance, in the very beginning, I mean, the digital projectors were so bad, they were unwatchable, yet all the posters were like, in digital, you know, digital presentation. They might as well just said, we've raised the prices double for no reason and pretend it's a sale. But that's what they did. I mean, just blatantly lied to the customers and, you know, customers were dumb enough to buy into it. it was well, I, I was, I was... I was interviewing for a uh, feature film one time that uh, was a nighttime movie, action movie, a lot of uh, huge fireball explosions. And I told the producer that, uh, you know, we should shoot film because, you know, I wanted uh, the medium that would capture really the detail and the depth and the color and, and the vibrancy of all those explosions. And and they went with another cinematographer and, and they went with a uh, digital and, and to that producer's credit, she called me, she called me on the phone <laughs> and she said, we are having to paint in all the, the <laughs> details and animate all the details in the flames. Cause what we have are complete whiteouts because all, all the files clipped on, on, on these explosions. <laughs> she said, I didn't listen to you. And, and I, I just remember that. And it's like you, you try to, to give people advice and, and guide them as to what is the reality as opposed to what is the myth, you know? And this applies to productions, producers, it applies to film schools and everybody else. But, you know, you know sometimes they get blinded by what, what other voices who are not as well-informed are telling them. And it's really the cinematographers that have to lead the charge, you know, in terms of what makes the most sense for the project that you're working on. I'm sure you would agree with this, Michael. There has been a, digital technologies have brought a marginalization of cinematographers and of talent. They just have. And, and also, I think that's across the movie business. So I can tell you that when, if I'm sitting in Warner Brothers or I'm sitting in Disney or some studio, it's all Hollywood people. And there, there is definitely a sense of respect for artistry, for artists, for directors. When I'm sitting in the more Silicon Valley company offices, there is absolutely no respect for artistry, for artists. I, it's just a different mentality. It is, uh, you know, the digital world works in, in obsolescence. You know, if I'm a software company and my software version 11 comes out, pretty much 10, 9, 8, 7, everything is dead. It's all about 11 and everything else is killed. That doesn't happen in our world. When, when acrylic paint comes out, that doesn't mean that you kill uh, oil paint. You know, if we don't, there's some movies that are perfect for 16 and some that are perfect for 65, but Chris Nolan loves 16. He wouldn't say, oh, I only shoot on 65 now. It's whatever the art works for. But you'd never go and say, gosh, this really feels like a 2K movie, not a 4K movie, or I need to shoot this in 720p as opposed to 4K. It's just pixels. It's just a, a rigid grid work of boxes. 
And um, so I, it's just a big difference, the digital and the analog world. I think talking about yeah. obsolescence is, oh yeah, sorry, go ahead, Christian. No, please, please, please. I was just gonna kind of segue into this sort of like social media, maybe people don't like talking about it, but there is like this element of like nostalgia that modern social media and even big brands are attracted to. The look of film, right? Or like a Polaroid filter, some sort of like old school imagery over an iPhone photo. Um, and a lot of brands, big brands are willing to pay for shooting on 16 for their commercials or um, wanting to spend time in post making, you know, their mini footage looking like 16. Um, so I'm curious, like Tahila and Christian, I think you both have had experiences uh, with brands and sort of them wanting that look. Um, and then I'd love to segue over to Michael talking about American Horror Story um, and what that look means to the show. But if Christian or Tahila, you have an example of working with a brand um, or commercial projects where they're coming to you maybe saying that they want to shoot on 16 or Christian, I know you shot a few commercials last year on 16 and how was that relationship? Um, yeah, I'm actually on a, on a campaign right now uh, that is a fashion brand uh, and they've shot the last like two or three years uh, on film and, and the director is we're doing a simultaneous like photo stills campaign and, and a film campaign and she's shooting all our stills on film. And um, it's kind of stipulated by the brand. It's sort of like becoming part of their identity. Um, they're a very high end fashion brand. And I think this, I think that film in some circles is sort of like a little bit of a bragging rights for certain ad agencies and certain um certain companies out there i do you know there's definitely several agencies i've worked with that you know they sort of uh have a high brow like you know everything we do is on 35 or um uh, so yeah i think that's a huge part of it i think going back to what you're talking about with social media i you know i think it's it's quite possible that what we're seeing you know the, this kind of resurgence of uh, people's interest in film could come from the fact that there is a generation that is being bombarded by digital images that never had film, uh, you know, references growing up or, you know, at the beginning of the internet. And I think through things like, you know, Instagram, initially Instagram was like all these film filters that you would put on your photos and then I think people started shooting higher res photos and doing, you know, uh, more Photoshop processing. And then I think it kind of just jumped into the coolest thing you could do was to shoot on film. And I think in some ways, a lot of that has translated into like the commercial and music video world where, um, you know, people realize that this is a medium that's still very relevant <clears throat> and also kind of gets you uh, some extra cool points in many situations, um, which I think is uh, perhaps a happy accident, but it's, it's quite wonderful that I think that's happening. Um, <clears throat> and the other thing is, <clears throat> I think uh, yeah, I've also been on a lot of projects where you know, we have some form of restriction or can't convince a studio or a, or a producer to shoot in film. And then we end up 
printing the film in post um, to basically try to sort of cheat that film look back in. And I think that maybe is worth discussing the point that like, even if you are shooting digital, at least in all of my work, um, you're adding film grain back in, uh, you know, in post. Uh, you're, if, if you're printing to film, you're hoping to sort of uh, shift everything back into like Kodak color science. Um, you're hoping to, you know, get all of these uh, more organic artifacts in your highlight roll off or, in, you know, blooming of, you know, a film print. And I think film is this language uh, as filmmakers that is sort of like the, the base that everything is sort of based on. I mean, every time I'm using a digital camera, I'm using film emulation LUTs, uh, you know, to process my dailies. That's usually where most of my DIs get, you know, start is with film emulation LUTs. So, you know, I do think it is this thing that's deeply embedded into the soul of, of uh, you know, a global, the global uh, vernacular of filmmaking. Can I, can I add one thing you said there, Christian? And if, if you look at the DNA of, of anything digital is the pixel. And in the course of our day, we are looking at pixels right now on our computer screens, on our television sets, on our iPhones, on our, our pads, on our bank records, on our medical records, we're just bombarded all day long with pixels. There's no way that there's not a pixel overload going on inside <laughs> of or when we're seeing 10 hours of pixels a day. There's just no way that's not the case. And it's the reason why museums are, you know, pre-COVID were absolutely killing it. I mean, you could not, you make a museum and you're, you're gonna be successful look across the country right now. More money is poured into museums. You, you go to the Getty at Tuesday at noon and you can't get a parking spot even though they've got 80 football fields of parking. We're not looking at pixels when we go in there. You know, there's digital ticketing, there's digital things, but you're looking at things that are organic. And you're also seeing movements to bicycles in downtowns and, and organic foods. And there is definitely, we have been over commercialized in all parts of our being as human beings, as people monetize things to preposterous extremes. And I'm telling you, we did that with this whole digital thing. Brought the whole ship down there with that one, huh? <laughs> I think for me, when I, how I, started getting work shooting on 16 was a little bit of a similar process with what Christian was mentioning about how photographers um, have been recently shooting a lot on with their 35 mil cameras and brands, musicians, different artists are, you know, seeing it as an attractive look where things feel more organic. And so um, if there was, you know, a brand that wanted to shoot on 35 stills, I would normally come in and maybe do the BTS portion on 16 so that it was um, on par with how it looked. And I think, you know, different ad agencies are getting accustomed to that standard, I guess you could say, of the um, film look, um, especially since I grew up in a world where there's just so much 
overconsumption and instant gratification with social media that they're always looking for what's new and cool and different. And um, I, I think it's great that, you know, it's giving me an opportunity and younger cinematographers a chance to try the medium. But again, it is just kind of a tool to see how, how much you can push your artistry. Um, what I really enjoy about shooting on film is comparing how it takes light. I know it's such a simple thing, but when I was lighting on digital with monitors, um, I didn't really think about, you know, how far I can push it with hard light or soft light. And um, you can kind of see that when a lot of artists and musicians are posting their stills or album covers that are now being shot on film versus how it was maybe like five years ago when it was shot on a 5D. It reminds me, that same subject reminds me of, of miking a kick drum. You know, when you mic a kick drum with a tube mic, I mean, you can just hit it as hard as you want and it just never, never clips, never breaks away. There's just, it's like infinite. And, um, you know, when you put it through a, a DAW with a digital microphone, it just, it's not the same. It just doesn't have the same compression and the same depth. Um, and I will add it on, on that subject matter with terms of music where you've got, you got visual art and audio art happening at the same time. We are just seeing so many Sam Domasheks and Connor Brashiers. And yesterday I was just communicating with Phineas who just bought two 35 millimeter cameras and he's shooting. All of these people are, they are migrating to film and they're, it's because they understand it's just flat out better. Yes, it's cool. It's kind of avant-garde industry now, but it's just better. The imagers come out so organic. I think there's yeah. also something uh, in terms of young cinematographers and young filmmakers uh, from the perspective of being an artist. I think that, you know, personally, and this, I guess Michael kind of touched on this in the beginning, but, you know, I think in the beginning of your career or if your education, you're constantly second guessing your choices. You're trying to develop that eye and that, that gut instinct. And I think, uh, I mean, I, feel like I have this experience every day on set where I am looking at an image and then immediately judging it because it's on a, you know, a 17 inch monitor, which I think a, in the first, first point uh, is that when you're making a film, you shouldn't be making all of your decisions based on a 17 inch version of your image. Uh, and, you know, ideally you'd be looking at your dailies on a, on a projector, which, which is rare these days, I suppose. But, but I think it, by removing yourself from this, this dependence on a digital image or a, a monitored image, I feel like you kind of free yourself, uh, from that criticism, from that self-criticism and you sort of are encouraged to take those risks and, you know, uh, maybe explore or do something that you otherwise wouldn't do if you or your entire crew are sitting there and judging, you know, the decisions that you're making, uh, you know, uh, live in front of an entire, you know, entire film crew behind you. I think that it just frees you up as an artist. Um, and as a student, I think that it's a, it's an important way to sort of develop that that voice that you're going to be relying on for your entire career. And it teaches you to trust a meter and trust your instincts and, and not trust, you know, a, the pixels that you're being shown. 
I'm sorry, I'm Arnold Horshack from Welcome Back, Cotterher, and talking all the time, but uh, Michael, you'll be the only one that gets that reference. Um, you guys have to watch a, a movie called Bait, and it's going to speak to what you just talked about, sort of the artfulness of it. So Mark Jenkins made this movie where he shot it black and white on a hand crank 16 millimeter camera. Every single thing was on one take and he obviously recorded no audio. He learned to read lips and then he went in the edit bay and edited by reading the lips. Then afterwards he brought the actors back in and they voiced it. In the processing of that, he, he hand processed every single foot of film himself. Obviously there wasn't that much of it because everything was one take. And on, on one day where there was a lot of pollen, he left the door open and let the pollen sneak in the lab. He wore a wool sweater on one day and let those fall off into the bath. And what you see, like you could Google it right now and see the trailer, it's so stunningly artful and original. And it really, he's got a signature now that is like Keith Richards playing a guitar lick. I mean, it is so amazing. And it literally cost nothing. And it was because he used a medium that wasn't locked in a rid grid work of rigid pixels. It was something that's organic. Yeah, I told, uh, I told Steve uh, one time, he's had me tell it to several other uh, seminars that uh, on American Horror Story one time, they wanted uh, a sequence to look like Nazi fetish porn movies from the 1930s. And, and so I took 16 millimeter black and white reversal film and I unspooled it on the darkroom floor. I tossed it around like a salad. I sprayed water on it and I dried it with a hair dryer and I flashed it with a flashlight and I rolled it back up onto a core and I shoved it into a hand crank 16 millimeter camera and shot it. And that footage looked exactly like 1930s Nazi fetish porn movies. And it was a completely organic process and fast and simple. And with American Horror Story, um, there was a, a time, the five years that I was a cinematographer, uh, one of the colleges that had uh, film courses asked me to come and speak about how I achieved in post-production the look of the show. And I said, well, the, the look of the show was achieved at the time that I shot it because I shot it on film. So the normal look was 35 millimeter regular processing, very clean, you know, immaculate. People look great. If I wanted it to to look slightly desaturated for a period of tone, I would pull the processing to stops. If I wanted it to be in black and white, I shot it on black and white film. If I wanted hyper real colors and deep contrast, I shot on reversal film. If I wanted it to look like a, a remembrance of somebody's past, I shot it on Super 8. You know, if I wanted a, a 1970s documentary look, I shot it in 16 millimeter and I underexposed three stops and I overprocessed three stops. So it was all done in the camera at the time that I shot it and not in post-production. And, yeah, and you as the cinematographer controlled that as opposed to, you know, a VFX team or, you know, a, an editor or a colorist. You, you were the author of all those decisions. Yeah. That's exactly right. And the thing is, you know, especially like in television and episodic television, the, the delivery dates are so close to when the, the show is going to go get on the air. And a lot of times you're working as the cinematographer, you know, you can't get into that kind of minutia of detail to control the, that look. 
You know, I mean, I, I shot one pilot one time and there was a flashback that they wanted to look like Super 8. And I said, well, great, we'll just shoot it on Super 8. And they said, no, 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 no. We'll make it look like Super 8 in post. And for three days, they messed with that footage, trying to make <laughs> it look like Super 8 and complaining that it didn't look organic and complaining that it didn't look real when they could have just shot it in Super 8. You know, so so these these tools these things that we as cinematographers use, we use for a purpose, you know, for an artistic purpose, certainly for, uh, for the convenience and the speed with which we can work with a particular medium in a particular situation. And also for what is actually right for the production from a cost standpoint and, and as well as the artistry. And, it's important that we fight for to keep that that voice in the mix and not have people who are not as well informed as we are about the usage of these mediums, you know, take over all those decisions. Well, they are taking over, that's for sure. And and I, I would add as an aside, there you know, there's hundreds of people that are responsible for their still being film. In the top five of those people, you've got Chris Nolan, P.T. Anderson, Quentin Tarantino, Patty Jenkins, and Michael Goy. Definitively, Michael was absolutely at the tippy-tippy top of that sort of friends of film meets friends of common sense of cinema, uh, who was fighting in the trenches when so many things were going wrong for the medium. Thank you, Steve. Mm -hmm. You didn't know I, I got to text Quentin and let him know that I'm competing with him. <laughs> Boy three, Tarantino four. With that in mind, Michael, I am curious about sort of your perspective of television's relationship um, to shooting on film. I mean, there's only, there's limited shows that are shot on film. Um, some mini series, I guess. I wouldn't consider those television shows necessarily, but yeah, what's, what are, you know, the suits saying or who's, um, what's their relationship with film when you're talking to them about those decisions? Well, and, and I think Steve would, would agree with me. At, at, right now, at this point, there's an assumption that a production is going to be digital um, unless somebody brings up, you know, shooting on film and, and why. You know, it's, 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 it's that process of having to justify why this particular medium, you know, would be better for this, this show. And, um, you know, it depends then on how willing they're, you know, they are to listen. You know, I was, I was fortunate on, on American Horror Story when I was shooting because that, that question did come up. It came up in season two of American Horror Story. You know, can we change the show to digital? And, and you know, and I told them, you know, film and what I can do with film and the look of film is going to be one of the signature things about this show, you know, and they, so they sat out, you know, they, and watched during season two, and then they saw what I meant. They, you know, they, they saw the response of the audience and stuff. And, and then they, they didn't ask me that question again, you know? So that's, that's the atmosphere we're in though, in, in television is, is it's just an assumption of, of digital. And I don't know, Steve, if you've heard, anything uh, different you know we so i will tell you this um the only way a television show ever ends up on film is if the director has the gravitas to say 
this is what I'm doing. If you don't want to do it, I'm out. Uh, cinematographers are largely irrelevant unless the cinematographer has the ear of the director. Um, so, you know, I spend most of my time with the directors. But right now, uh, especially with HBO, we have a very, very film friendly entity there. And you've got um, Westworld is on film. You've got Secession on film. Adam McKay's got a new series that's shooting on film. Um, Euphoria just switched from video to film. Um, and then that director, Sam Levinson, just shot a movie um, on film that's you know looking like it's going to be an Academy Award winner this year, or at least a, in the hunt. Um, so th they are fantastic. Uh, the streamers, uh, it's been a very much of an uphill battle. Uh, and it, it's, it, if I'm dealing with the person that's on tippy tippy top of the streamer, they usually have enough common sense. It's the middle people that are just doing the basic blocking and tackling that are just so anti-film, it's ridiculous. They just don't get it and they don't want to. They don't care about art. And, and there's one thing that I, I seem like I'm a crazy film guy here. The reality is I love all sorts of motion picture and I, I love video and I shoot video all the time. But I tell people not to shoot film all the time as well. And it comes down to one question. Are you making art or are you making product? And if you're just making product, you don't need to shoot film. Film is easier in some ways. It's also harder. It kicks back. Um, with film, there is struggle. You know, there you might get a light leak. You might get a this. You might get a that. That you're not seeing what's happening on set, or you're seeing it through a uh, you know a 1080 monitor. Um, and so, if, if you're not a great cinematographer and you're just kind of going through the motions, film's not for you. But if you want to make art and you want to make timeless art that stands the test of time, shoot film. Well, I'll tell you, Steve, on, on Mary, you know, we shot all those those thousands and thousands of feet of film on a sailboat during hurricane season. I never had one one bad batch. <laughs> I never had one misprocess. I, uh, you know, and we were shipping the film out to Photocam in Burbank from Gulf Shores, Alabama, and not one incident. Yeah. No dust, no nothing. That's fantastic. Um, I, you know, on that subject matter, you know, we do a hundred movies a year and two or three of them will have an issue and we jump in and we're, you know, we have the best color scientists in the world. And when there's a hot potato, we're all over it. But I will say in general, because I have no problem owning the, the difficulties of, of our medium when there are them. And obviously you have someone talented like Michael, you don't get them. But, um, if you go through the pantheon of great art throughout the history of humanity, struggle is a inherent part of those, you know, of making a Beatles song, John and Paul didn't always get along. It was hard making those, you know, recorded uh, in Strawberry Fields, recorded at two different tempos and paces and cut together and made work. The Sistine Chapel was not easy to make, but with struggle usually comes those things that end up standing the test of time. And I'm noticing a world where we just don't embrace adversity. You know, it's kind of the, you know, we want every kid in the soccer place to get a trophy as opposed to letting someone shed some tears and have a little bit of pain every once in a while. Um, but that's, I, I do notice that great art inherently has a great relationship with struggle. The ones that are the hardest to get over the line, get over the line, and then they end up being masterpieces. Well, speaking of struggle, then, you know my script, Guthrie? 
Yes. You know, yes, it, I'm, I'm this close right now. It's probably happening while I speak to signing my lead actor. If that happens, April and May, I'm going into production. So I'm going to need 5219 and I'm going to need double X negative because <laughs> yeah. that's what I'm going to shoot that, that movie on. So, yeah. Where so are you start making it. <laughs> yeah. Where are you shooting that movie? Uh, we haven't decided if we're going to actually shoot in Guthrie, Oklahoma, or if we're going to shoot uh, somewhere in California or, or New Mexico. That's that's being talked about right now. Gotcha. Well, Steve, okay. I think like yep. your previous comment, like I feel like we only have a little bit of time left here, but I'm curious if everyone could sort of, I'm all about sort of the call to action, you know, like what is everyone um, is very passionate about this topic. So what is sort of our responsibility as filmmakers and cinematographers and, you know, emulsion freaks to sort of keep, keep the ball in the air. Um, I think with, I feel discouraged knowing that colleges are getting rid of it because those are the people making our ACs. Those are our loaders. Um, those are people that were, you know, inevitably going to hire or even our gaffers. Um, so what's sort of, what, what do we want the next five to 10 years uh, to look like? Well, I, I would say the two reasons why you want to fight for film are because there will be no longevic record if we don't have film and you make better art with film. So I fight for choice of motion picture artists because I want them to be able to decide. If someone says, I want to shoot in 8K, hallelujah, I couldn't be happier for them. I just want them to be able to have that choice. But to get that choice, when entities make ignorant decisions like those types of schools. It's simple, don't go to those schools. Drop out that day and change schools and go to one that does. Tell every young person you know, under no circumstances, go to that school. And uh, that's impactful. Yeah, I think it's incredibly short-sighted from an education standpoint or, or from uh, you know, obviously a for-profit college standpoint, because I do think there will uh, be a time where people make decisions to go to film school based on the fact that they shoot film. Certainly, any you know, anytime I get an email from someone who's asking what film what film school should I go to, that's one of the first things that I say is make sure that you're going to a film school that has film in the curriculum. And I think it's I think it's foolish you know, yeah, I think a majority of digital uh, print art is probably done with, you know, Adobe Photoshop, but it doesn't mean that if you go to school to learn Photoshop that you don't first learn, you know, how, what actual paint and paint brushes uh, are and how to use them first. Uh, even if you graduate and are learning everything digital, I still think it's important uh, that film is part of a curriculum. Um, and certainly I don't think film is going away anytime soon as a medium. We, you know, we're witnessing this unbelievable revolution in technology for digital imaging. And yet, you know, I'm, I'm shooting film all next week. So I don't think it's going away. Uh, I think it's, I think it's something that obviously, you know, organizations and education uh, has a responsibility to, to try to preserve it. Uh, just as much as, you know, directors and cinematographers do. Yeah, I, I would also add to that. I would challenge everyone to say the following. There's no such thing as shooting in digital. Digital is a technology, just like analog is a technology. 
the medium is video. You can either shoot on film or on video. You can't shoot on digital just like you can't shoot on analog. And then two, it isn't a film school if they're not shooting film. It's a file school, period. I, I once did a, uh, you know, I, I've said that to some pretty big groups of people and in the beginning it was sort of ballsy. Um, and I was rolling the dice until I did one with Chris Nolan. And um, it was at, I think it was at Sundance and somebody asked him a question and uh, he referred to them all as camcorder users. <laughs> <laughs> and so I, uh, I think, all right, I'm fine calling people file makers if you can say that. Uh. And I got file makers actually from Denzel Washington is the one who said, I'm a filmmaker, not a file maker. Kayla, you want to? Yeah, I, I just don't think it's fair to deprive, you know, students, especially at such a pivotal point of, you know, your artistry where you're, you're so malleable um, that if, you know, if someone had an experience like me where it was pretty much purely digital and here I am, you know, hearing about bigger films who say that cost is, you know, pretty much a equivalent to digital um it's i just think it's important that schools realize that the atmosphere that film creates is really important too and i don't think that's stressed enough where it's kind of seen in a bad light where delayed gratification is seen in, in a bad light where it's like oh you're not seeing what you're doing right away so it's better to just experiment it because since you're experimenting with the resources that are immediate, um, you need to figure it out now. Um, whether, you know, schools need to condition artists and cinematographers and even in all fronts, not just cinematographers, that um, there is, time is valuable and that schools shouldn't feed into what, you know, social me media is curating with that quick gratification and quick consumption and watching all the seasons something so instantly and um yeah i just i i learned that after graduation and i wish universities would just allocate money to maintain the gear that they already own um i don't think it's that difficult to send out the sr2s and to get the scanner checked out and have a course where students can practice eight millimeter or 16 millimeter and you know how Michael had his classes back in the day because that's something I would have found so valuable. It, it's funny how these institutions are so out of touch. I was at the TikTok house recently where you have or the hype house where all the TikTok stars live and you have one kind of main image capturer, Bryant, and you, you have two people there that have, one person has like 101 million followers, one person that has 70 million followers, and all the image capture is on film by one guy, Bryant. And Sam Domashek and Connor Brashier and all of these, you know, the hottest, coolest people that are capturing images, they're all shooting film. I mean, the, the school should be sprinting to go do what's on the cutting edge instead of being on the trailing edge, but they're just, they're so out of touch. I, th I think I only have 140,000 TikTok followers, so, <laughs> so I'm way behind. But, uh, you know, it's it's about, what was it, six or seven years ago, Steve, you asked me to to speak at the luncheon for, I think, the HPA conference. Yep. And um, 
it was it was a room filled with mostly young filmmakers you know and and I wrapped up my discussion over there telling them I, because you know they were wondering you know who's 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 going to save you know film going into the future and I told them I said it's it's not Christopher Nolan it's not Quentin Tarantino it's not Spielberg it's, it's not me you know it's all of you in this room you know who have never shot film who have that curiosity of what it can do you know who have that that desire to try something artistically different and and just two days ago my former assistant tanya texted me and she said you know because she produces music videos and she says i want to to start shooting these on film how do i start that you know do you know what what camera do i use and you know how do i start to learn this process so it's this generation that's coming now which is why it makes it so crucial for the film schools to teach it you know and it's not going to stop the 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 young filmmakers who really 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 want to shoot film because they will find a way no matter what but you know it it if when the film when film stays in the film program in a film school, it makes that tool immediately accessible so that people can explore, you know, and that's important. Totally, I think it's great, Michael. Sage with Steve, it's, you know, if all these schools stop teaching film, you know, Kodak Film School might be, uh, might be the next one <laughs> on the plate. You know, I, I try and maintain a healthy ecosystem so, you know, we've kind of done exactly opposite of what the Silicon Valley companies have done. We've not tried to own every single part of the pathway. Um, but what we have, because we, we want a healthy environment of lots of people supporting it. I look at it as I'm the guy putting on the Academy Awards, but I want everyone else to be having a Vanity Fair party and a CAA party and, and to create this big thing. Um, that being said, when something happens like the Atlanta lab was going out of business three years ago, we bought the lab. When New York didn't have a lab, we went in and built a lab. Um, we'll be making an announcement very shortly about something we're doing similar here in LA. And um, you know, so we, we're very good shepherds of the space, but we're not trying to be the complete owners of the space. Awesome. Well, everyone, this was uh, very informative. Hopefully everyone feels um, satisfied after this conversation. I'm curious if anyone has any final remarks uh, before we close it up. Shoot film and thank you for shooting film on behalf of <laughs> Awesome. If you ever have yeah. a chance to go to Rochester, New York, let me know. <laughs> and the film factory is literally the eighth wonder of the industrialized world. You just cannot believe your eyes when you see what, you know, the place is so big. There are 27 miles of train track on the grounds of the, the park. That's how big it is. It's I would say my only piece of advice is if, if you want to have, if you want to have my career, don't be afraid, you know, to shoot film. If you've never done it, grab a roll, shoot it. And it, it literally, your, your, your head will explode at the possibilities. Christian, do you have any advice? Uh, 
I think also shoot digital or shoot film stills if you can too. I think film stills are a great way to, you know, if you're not, if you're a film student and you're having a tough time, you know, not learning enough on learning how to shoot film, I think stills is a super important thing. And I think, you know, we've, we've moved in the direction of digital still cameras so much culturally, but I think you can learn so much about film stocks and, and latitude and exposure and processing um, simply by, you know, buying a cheap 35 mil camera and shooting some rolls of your own, so. That's great. Tequila, any advice for the youngins? Um, I mean, pave your own path. If you wanna shoot on film and try and get work, that's kind of how I did it, even Though my school didn't always have the best resources for shooting on film, if you want to do it and really pursue um, career in cinematography, I think it's important to push for what you want and experiment, especially you have access to all these different tools. Awesome. Well, everyone, thank you so much for your time. Uh, this was really meaningful today, and I appreciate that was said. Um, I'm really excited to share this and um, thank you again for being a part of the conversation. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Bye.